Hello, everybody. You are now doing less once more with John and Jeff. Welcome back. Um, it's been uh, over three weeks since we recorded our last episode, and uh, I want to come out and say now I'm at liberty to say we were at, we had some contract disputes, uh, Jeff and I, uh, to record these podcasts. So luckily we worked through that. Mostly it was because we heard that Joe Rogan is getting paid a hundred million dollars a year. For his podcast john's uh, ripping so, me off so we wanted to get back into that on that action and uh, so we were able to, to yes as jeff said tie up our our con uh contract disagreements yeah before he was keeping 100 percent of the profits and now we're splitting it 50 50 yes it's still That's zero right. dollars in case you're still zero <laughs> Now he owes half. He owns half of the debt, <laughs> and I own half the debt. <laughs> um, but today we're going to be talking about the. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot more stuff to talk about uh, with, with regards to the coronavirus shutdown. Um, the whole economy is just one big experiment right now. So, uh, we know you guys turned to do less to hear us weigh in on what should be happening in the economy and uh so that's what we're going to be talking about today stuff that should be happening stuff that we see that is happening and stuff that people are talking about uh the first one um well kind of the first topic that we're going to be diving into is just the concept of stimulus uh stimulating s people st stimulating the citizens that are without work uh and uh, what does that mean for the long-term economic impact to a society? Um, I'll just I'll just start by one of the things that I that made me start thinking about this was I saw a graph of the unemployment rate next to the credit card delinquency rate. So credit card payments thirty days outstanding or more. <clears throat> uh, they, they move in lockstep ever since like before 2008, you know, for the past over 10 years. Unemployment went up in 2008 and credit card delinquencies went up. And then as unemployment went down, uh, credit card delinquencies moved down in parallel. And recently we've gotten a, a ginormous spike up in unemployment with no, with no movement, with no change to credit card delinquencies. Credit card delinquencies are just as low as they were before... Uh, any mention of coronavirus. So what does that mean? Does that mean um, there's a spike coming in credit card delinquencies? Or did, did the Federal Reserve solve the problem of economic hardship? <laughs> uh, there's not going to be any de delinquencies ever. We, you know, we can just have massive unemployment without credit card delinquencies as long as people spend their... Or as long as people uh, get their stimulus checks. Um so that's something that's definitely I'm keeping my eye on. Yeah, um, I mean, if more people are un unemployed, you should expect more people to miss their credit card payments. I mean, it just makes sense, right? And so maybe on face value, this seems like a good thing, right? So the, the credit card companies get paid what they're promised and people get to keep their credit score up uh everyone's happy right um 
but we what we don't see is the unseen costs of the stimulus, right? So the question is, anytime the government spends money, they have to get that from somewhere. Um, and so either they had to borrow the money or they had to increase taxes or they had to print the money. That's the only way they can pay or they could have sold some of their assets. But our government doesn't really have any assets. So that's not really one of the options. But so they didn't increase taxes. We know that much. And in fact, tax revenue is most likely going to go down this year. Uh, I mean, it's certainly going to go down. It's not it's not most likely. It's it's definitely going to go down. Um, so obviously they had to borrow the money. Um, and some of it, so, some of that borrowing is not, so, so some of that borrowing is not directly paid for by the Fed. Like the Fed's not printing money and just handing it to the government. What the government does is they borrow the money and then the Fed buys, uh, the, those bonds from the government, uh, not directly, but in the secondary market. Um, but that's kind of neither here nor there, like, their buying of the bonds in the secondary market is going to affect their price on the primary market. Um, but so again, back to the question is, okay, we issued the stimulus, no harm done, right? No harm, no foul. It looks like, you know, unemployment went up, but people got to pay their credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. But again, so these, these costs, these stimulus things, these are long, I think in my opinion, long-term costs, right? So, Either we're going to pay down this debt or we're just going to keep printing money until it we essentially default on the debt by making the money we owed worth much less. Uh, and so over a long period of time, you know, we're either going to pay more in taxes than we would have gotten from these stimulus checks because debt accrues interest or the value of our savings is going to decrease more than the money we got from these stimulus checks. So in the long run, you can basically say with pretty much certainty that the amount of value citizens got from the stimulus is going to be less than the long-term costs to pay for it. So in when you think about it, it's like basically the government is forcing us to, because you don't really get a choice whether you get the stimulus. Like they, they're going to hand it out. And so obviously you might as well take it. But all they've done is just basically take, a, they've taken a loan out of your future to give you money now in your present. And maybe for some people that's in their interest, but maybe for a lot of people, it's actually not in their interest. Maybe people are going to come down on harder times in the future. You don't know. And so it's just, they're just kind of picking and choosing what's the best for us without, you know, our permission. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of take that and apply it to what I think people should think about government spending as. So you, you're kind of mentioning the concept of future 
uh, ability or future amount to be able to spend versus the amount of it being able to spend today. That concept is like return of uh, being able to spend more in the future than you are today. And when you're talking about return, you know, you're talking about investing. Like investing properly is me like if you're a good investor, it means you can spend more tomorrow. Like you're foregoing spending today. You're uh, you're picking the best avenue to return capital and you'll be able to spend more tomorrow. And I think this is critical for thinking about government. And I don't hear this conversation a lot, so maybe this is a hot take for do less podcast listeners. Um, but uh, I think that government spending should be thought of primarily as an investment, right? The government, because I mean, if if modern monetary theorists have anything going for them, right? They, they said that after 2008, it wasn't going to be inflationary. They said pr- the government could basically print as much money as they want um, because the dollar is not going to devalue because or they can print as much as they want and uh, they're not going to default on their obligations because they can just print more. They, they do rec- they do understand that you know, you know eventually you're going to lose purchasing power through inflation. But they say at that point you can just ta- you can increase taxes and then that'll curb inflation. So um, so that's kind of their, the basis of their argument. But it's completely disregarding the concept of when you're spending. It's different f- to place money in non-returning uh, avenues than it is to put it into returning avenues, right? I would actually almost agree with modern monetary theorists if they said. You know, our theory only works if you get you get ten percent return on your spending. The government, you know, the government spending, even though yes, it is spending like you and I would spend for like um, a contract on a bridge or like a you know a, a public works project, just as you and I would buy a new window for our house or a new driveway service, right? It's all contracts that are spent into you know there there's. You're, you're providing the funding for that contract. The government is providing the funding. But to, to think of it as just spending and then what, well, you know, that's it. That, the money is spent and now it's in the economy. You know, that's all the conversation needs to include. Mm-hmm. Well, the conversation needs to include the return. Right. right. If you build a bridge that crumbles and is not useful in a year from now, well, then you just, bit, you just essentially burn that money. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot different than putting money into the economy through, say, a bridge that's sturdy and useful and people are willing to pay tolls to go over the bridge and you know after 10 years you actually return a positive return on that bridge right the government can actually do that that's actually what the government should be doing it should be acting as a smart public investor investing in things that's going to make the 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 public better off it's going to return real you know money real value to the government and it's going to be able and then taking out debt or or issuing debt as the government does to to create this works this to create the works to create the public you know contract uh it's actually very it's everyone's better off because of that um which is a lot different than burning the money yeah well i mean like they're right in that they're the modern monetary people uh they're right in the sense that there's a trade-off between taxation debt and inflation like they're all essentially part of the same picture but what i think they fail to understand is that there's a difference between money and wealth 
they look at it as like, okay, the government spent the money, so the money's back in the economy, and then it can be go spent on other things. And as long as there's like this amount of money going around, no no harm done. Like it's the same amount of wealth in the pool. It's like, no, no, no. Money is not the same as wealth. You can have the same level of money or a lower level of money or a higher level of money. The, and it's completely irrelevant to the amount of wealth that's in your country. Wealth is real stuff. It's things like houses, running water, electricity, you know, food, cars. That That's wealth. That's real standard of living. That's what we really want at the end of the day. And if you take all the money earned by people producing real wealth and then you spent it on, you know, digging a bunch of ditches, you've just replaced all the real wealth with a bunch of ditches. So it's like, yeah, the same amount of money is there. But now, since you spent all the money on unproductive things versus productive things, then the next year, once everyone takes their paycheck from digging all those ditches, there's nothing to spend it on because the only thing you produced in that year was ditches. So it's not that you can't just equate all spending because it's not the same, right? You can't just spend money and say, okay, that's just that it's just spending. It's, it's in this aggregate of spending and it's all the same. It's like not all spending is created equal. Not all investment is created equal. There's good investments. There's bad investments. You can't just aggregate them and call this, you know, some variable I and put it in the GDP. It doesn't work that way. Um, right. So I think that's where their theory, it, uh, has a fault in its core assumptions. And another place I would say, is they're right that you know as inflation rises, you can increase taxes and decrease um, you know debt, and then that will fix you know that will fight the inflation. But we don't. There is no working real model for predicting inflation. So, like, what if you inflate your way into like a hole you can't get out of? If you if inflation gets too out of control. It may be the case you actually cannot collect enough tax revenue because there is a limit on how much tax revenue you can get. Uh, like you can increase the rate as much as you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean you, you're going to increase the revenue. Um, and so there's a limit to how much revenue you can get. And if you if you dig yourself into a dig enough ho- big enough hole, taxation can't necessarily cover the amount of fl- inflation you've already created. And so there's no way to predict that. Uh, beforehand. So I think that's a dangerous game they're playing with that. And on the top of, of inflation, I think people really, really, really underestimate how how much inflation takes from us. Um, and so, John, you, you, you sent me a, this interesting index that... Uh, is an alternative to the CPI that was, it's done by a private research group. It's called the Chapwood Index. And essentially they're just have their own method of measuring inflation um, in which they take the top 500 items that people use their disposable income on uh, each year um, and then look at the top 50 cities in terms of uh, population, I guess, or size, however that's measured. Um, and then they just, they just look at the gen, they don't do any adjustments or anything. They just look at the price of those, you know, top 500 items unadjusted 
and then just measure the, ch- the change of that basket year over year. Um, and, you know, that seems like, you know, on its face, a decent way of measuring inflation. You know, like, I don't, there's probably flaws in that, but there's going to be flaws in any way of measuring general price level because it's, as a concept, it it's flawed to begin with. So it's, it's always going to have issues. But, you know, it seems like a perfectly reasonable way to measure it. And yet they're coming up with inflation rates of like 10% per year for the past five years in almost every major city in America. Uh, and to give you some context, if there's inflation t- at 10% per year over five years, over that five-year span, any cash you have sitting in your bank account will have lost 45% of its purchasing power over that five-year period. So you're basically every five years losing half of your wealth to inflation if that's the true level of inflation, which I'm not saying it is, but it seems like a legitimate way to measure it. And you know, if it's anywhere near that wheelhouse, that's a pretty astounding amount of your wealth that you're losing constantly to inflation. So it really should not be underestimated how destructive inflation can be to our wealth as a nation. Yeah, I really like the Chapwood Index. I think that that's, um, that's really a breath of fresh air to this conversation because the, really the holy grail for modern monetary theorists is like, you know, inflation is your limiter. Inflation mm-hmm. is the limiting factor. So you do whatever you want. It's modern monet- It's modern monetary theory. So it's like we live in this age of digital. You can print money <laughs> digitally. And, you know, there's no such thing as like, oh, we ran out of the ability to provide these resources to people. We're only limited by the the, the stuff we can think of to spend it on. It's like modern. It's like that's modern monetary theory. As long as like people are unemployed, you can keep spending. You can keep creating money and buying things to until everybody's empl- until full employment right mm-hmm. and they say yeah okay there is a drawback like if you start to see inflation then you gotta you gotta cut it back a little bit but the cpi has been so low for so long like even look at japan like japan uh uh has been has had deflation even with the bank the bank of japan um printing so much money and and government absorbing so many uh facets of or sectors of their economy. So it's like if Japan is can, can like fully undergo modern monetary theory and they don't even see any inflation, they see deflation, right? You know, we've got all this space to, to run with. Um, but that's using, that's just like taking the CPI as like this golden, you know, uh, law, like this, this inherent truth to an economy. It's like, we've talked about this on this podcast. Mm-hmm. The CPI is, is garbage. Like, it's not <laughs> even like, like the CPI is tracks of a fixed basket of goods price and they change the basket. Like that's inherently like different than what the CPI is supposed to be. So that's why this Chapwood index is really refreshing. Cause it's like, there's like, it's public. All of it is like, in, is, the information is not hidden. It's just like, here are the goods we're looking at. 500 things that you can buy in these cities, you know, average prices, and then we'll track it over time. It's like they, on average, go up 10% here, 8% here, you know, 12% there. It's like specifically what we actually said on this podcast. We're mm. like, it's different for Tulsa, right? you know, than it is to uh, for New York. So right. it's like, 
you got to be able to track that different. Like you got to have some kind of ability to 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 create a difference between those metrics, not just one beautiful perfect like perfect number that comes out. This is the CPI. Look, it's below two. Keep printing. Like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, wheels up. Keep printing. Inflation's below two. Even inflation above two. It's like okay, symmetric inflation. Keep going. Keep going. You know, they'll never stop. Like you need something to reel them back right. in. It's like. What are you trying to measure? Prices? Oh, prices? They're going up. <laughs> Look right. at the Chapwood Index. You know, so it's like, uh, it's just really, um, I think it's really an advancement to this conversation because it's like, uh, I mean, I, 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 I could talk for hours about the theoretical, you know, it's, I mean, it's basic supply and demand. It's basic, go back to Econ 101, you know, if you print money, and you engage in a market where there was otherwise no printed money, the supply and demand is going to clear the market at a certain price, right? It's going to find its equilibrium. You add money, you're adding demand. Added demand is a higher price. Like, it's just yeah, basic it's economics. Simple. Like, every dollar that's printed is necessarily demand that didn't exist, mm-hmm. and therefore prices are theoretically going. But you can't just talk that way when, when you're talking about these, like, advanced macroeconomic you know modern monetary theorists because they're like no you know we got these all these metrics you got cpi you got it's like okay well prices they are going up <laughs> look at the chapwood index right yeah and that's like the thing is like they have their cpi measure and they think it's like so infallible that like they're not even considering other ways of looking at it but it's like if inflation is that high 10 percent, that's that's astounding right that's that's really high levels inflation that and honestly to me that seems like more accurate that seems like a more accurate representation of how much we're getting screwed by inflation but let's say even if there was let's say the chapwood index came back at zero percent for the past five years that doesn't mean it's okay to keep printing money just because there's no inflation in consumer goods or whatever doesn't mess doesn't mean there's zero consequences to printing money right so if people have savings. That savings came from real production, real value. They, you know, whatever you want it to be. Like, so let's say you needed a plumber and they came in and they plumbed it and you paid them. That money that is sitting in that plumber's bank account represents real value of fixing your house and maintaining its running water. Okay. So that's real wealth that's been added. Okay. Now, if other people want to go out and experiment and take risks and the WeWork guy wants to borrow some money to go do his crazy idea for a company, he has to go to the market in a free market and ask all the people who have proven themselves with and produced real wealth and have those savings in their bank account. And he has to ask them, can I please borrow some of this money for this idea I have? And those people are going to say, maybe... Yes, no, doesn't matter. But they're gonna there's gonna be a price, and that price is gonna be based on how much savings there is available and how good these ideas are for investment. And that's gonna be the market rate of interest. Okay. And if there's a lot of savings, it'll be low. But if there's not a lot of savings, it'll be pretty high. But if the Fed now comes in and becomes a lender at a lower interest rate than what the market has determined, then everyone who's saved and produced real wealth is getting screwed out of their opportunity 
to be a lender. Value they could have gotten as a lender because of their savings that they deserve is now being taken away from them because the Fed can offer it at a cheaper rate. So essentially what you've done is you've transferred wealth away from savers to borrowers by manipulating the the rate of interest. So you, you don't even have to take a look at inflation to see there are repercussions to you know, yeah. manipulating interest rates or printing money. Um, and so this has negative consequences, right? So like I've said this before, I think if you had roughly 10 grand and you invested it, like if you managed to get a 30 year CD at 10% interest, you know, that would be like 200 grand by the time you got your money back versus at like 5%, you'd get, you get like 20 grand by the time your money. So it's like, a huge, huge difference in the total wealth accumulation that you would have uh, by the end of that 30 years. So this is like a huge wealth transfer from savers to borrowers. And why why are we doing that? You know, what what is the justification? I've yet to see a single justification as to why we should be transferring wealth away from people who save to people who borrow. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. That's the, and that's, so that's the effect of printing money. Um, and more broadly, inflation, uh, inflation's effect on the economy. Um, it's really, it's really backwards the way our country's economists are, you know, economists in the world believe that, um, inflation is necessary in a healthy economy. Like Mm -hmm. you can have inflation that's too low. Well, not only is that it's so bizarre because inflation is actually the the product of a healthy or you know ill economy. You could have a healthy economy with deflation. You could have a healthy economy with inflation. You could have a sick economy with inflation. You could have a sick economy with deflation. Right. So right off the back, hearing that, you should be able to say, "Oh, <laughs> I can't make decisions off the inflation like inflation as a metric." Right. Like that's it's not enough information. It it itself is a a product of a underlying deeper root cause um so so right off the bat it's kind of it's just goofy to to make policy while watching inflation but um the the government does do that the federal reserve does do that and not only you know do they make the policy on it as i said they want higher inflation you know they see inflation that's too low and they want to change that right and this is the this is one of the biggest scams that <laughs> like the that that we we fallen for that we we were able to be convinced that our economists were able to be convinced that this is a thing mm-hmm. the government wants the government you have to understand has a vested interest in this whole situation because the government is the biggest borrower so the government wants inflation to be is always better when inflation is larger any entity that's a, a large borrower um, is always going to benefit when the debt to be repaid is cheaper to repay when they have to repay it than it was when they took out the uh, the the lending. So you can ha- kind of think of it in a different uh, different way of putting it is that the government is like always inherently short dollars when they are borrow you know when they uh, borrow dollars. Um, 
and then as Jeff was saying, it transfers money from or transfers wealth from uh, savers to borrowers. Well, it also transfers uh, wealth from those that are long dollars to those that are short dollars. So again, the government is like the largest short entity of dollars um, in the whole world. The U.S. government is. And then who's long dollars, right? You could think, oh, like... Anyone with a bank account. <laughs> yeah. So, and, 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 and more so is you might think like, oh, like, if you're long dollars, like, who who is really long dollars? You might think, oh, like, someone in the 1%, like a billionaire is like long dollars. But in actuality, a billionaire is actually shorter dollars than a middle, middle class, you know, earner. Mm-hmm. Like a middle income earner is actually longer dollars uh, as a proportion of their net wealth than a billionaire is. Like almost much, always. much more. Yeah. So because like when you think about it, like someone who depends on their salary to uh, to live. Right. They're essentially um, they're essentially agreeing to a annuity agreement. Right? Annuity is just like an agreement to be paid a fixed amount of money in like a fixed period. Right, so a salary is just an annuity, right? So in exchange for an, an annuity, I'm going to offer my time, skills, you mm. know, my work uh, that as a salaried employee. So when I make make that agreement, which most middle income, middle middle class earners do, um, they are signing a agreement that is making them extremely long dollars uh, with respect to their net worth. Like they need the dollar to maintain value because they need the dollars that they receive in the future to be as, to go as far as they think they will at the time of signing the contract. Right. Um, a billionaire, it's not the case. Like a billion, when you talk about a billionaire salary, it's almost like irrelevant. Like I think Jeff Bezos is like, has a salary at Amazon, the company he owns of like 70 K. Yeah. It's somewhere around like, there. Yeah, not to like balk at that. I mean, that's a good salary for like any middle mm-hmm. income earner. But to Jeff Bezos, that's laughable. Like right. he doesn't care about this. Like the salary is probably just for accounting purposes. Like it's just <laughs> like a tax thing. Like just like a stupid loophole or something. They're trying to. All right. Like his his salary, if you will, his income is his capital gains that he gets on the company he owes. Mm-hmm. He owns the assets that are you know under his name and under in ownership under the law. Like that's his, and that's not, so he has, ownership of assets has nothing to do with dollars. That's, that's a real, like Jeff was saying, that's a real asset. And that could be real wealth if the company is managed properly. Mm -hmm. So he, as a, as a proportion to his wealth, Jeff Bezos is much uh, shorter dollars or like less long dollars than say, uh, you know, a minimum wage worker at McDonald's or something. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So the, and the wealth is being shifted from, the long dollars, middle income earners, mm-hmm. to the sh- to the less long dollars, billionaires. Right. Which is just you can think of like inflation as essentially flattening the distribution of how long or short people are of the dollar, where it's extracting wealth from the people who are extremely long the dollar, people who are extremely short the dollar, and so like it's it's essentially like the most regressive tax you could ever invent. Uh, it it takes the majority of the wealth from lower income people to pay for government and much less of the wealth from upper income people. So like it, it, you know, 
the inflation is probably, in my opinion, the biggest culprit to wealth inequality in this country. Uh, and I don't think enough people are are acknowledging this. Um, if anyone at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so all this stuff that we're saying, it's kind of uh, in response to this tweet that Paul Krugman uh, tweeted out this week, um, which who Krugman is, if you don't if not familiar, he's not really a modern monetary theorist. I mean, in name, a lot. <laughs> I in, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, like na- names are like and, useful to an extent. But it's yeah. like they have yeah. limits. Uh, economists get so caught up with names, like yeah, dude. oh, like neoliberalism <laughs> or neo-Keynesianism, <laughs> Keynesianism, uh, modern monetary theory. Like it's all just like you, you know, you, you got to learn th- these like these uh, stratum to understand like what someone's even talking about before you even like hear what they're saying because like people like identify with these classes of economists. But he's what's considered like a Keynesian, which is, I mean, I guess the biggest difference between that and modern monetary theory is Keynesianism is like, um, it's like stimulus is the, uh, Keynesianism is like, is focusing on the trade-off between stimulus and uh, growth, economic growth kind of. Well, I would say... Keynesian and modern monetary theory both have the same central premise in that they think if there is unemployment, they see that as like slack in our productive capacity, and they think that can be uh, fixed by a central planner. Whereas in Keynesianism, it's the government that should spend the money to fix the problem, and they get that through taxes or debt. Whereas the modern monetary people would say just print the money and employ people to do stuff. Yeah, and that's really the only difference I think. Right, that's a that's a good distinction. Yeah, like Keynesianism, it's like debt is sometimes good. Like sometimes you want more and more debt, whereas monetar- modern monetary theory is like don't even think about the debt. Like that's right. not even like a something, which is just it's kind of arbitrary. But uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so Krugman's this is is a uh, Nobel laureate Keynesian economist. And he tweeted this on uh, May 22nd. Today is May 24th, by the way. We are recording this on mm-hmm. Sunday afternoon. Paul Krugman said, repeat after me. Debt is money we owe to ourselves. It doesn't make the nation as a whole poorer. Right? So he's trying to dispel the myth that growing the national debt is a problem. Because the national debt, it's growing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, if, if the national debt growing is a problem, we are screwed because <laughs> it was a big deal when it hit 22 trillion when it hit 23 trillion uh i think it hit 24 trillion like two weeks ago and then it's gonna hit 25 trillion like next week no i think it already passed like, 25 or it's already passed 25 it's gonna it's hit close 26, to 26 like, yeah yeah exactly so it's like exponential or as joe biden would say exponential <laughs> exponentially increasing um you ain't black exp- yeah you ain't right uh oh my gosh that's just as absurd but i don't think we'll go into that <laughs> no we don't need to get into that yeah uh so so an economist who agrees with what the government is doing right now but wants to maintain the public image that it's the right thing might want to dispel the rumor that a growing debt is a problem right so uh 
He is shaking hands with the modern monetary theorists and saying, don't look at the debt. It's not a problem. He said, in fact, um, you know, it's money we owe ourselves. So it's it's irrelevant. It's just like a, it's just a balance sheet. It's just a balance sheet mechanics, you know. It's it's not actually any 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 boating sign or uh you know of bad or a problem. It's just, you know I don't even know it's just a, it's not an it's not an issue in his opinion. Right. But uh we're really going into in this podcast the fact that it's it is an issue if that debt is created with no recourse to be able to pay it off then an exponential increase you have to be looking for okay where's the exponential increase in tax receipts right right if if you can show that then it's like okay yeah i see it's not a it's not an issue if you can't show that then it's just like you you have to understand every single year a larger portion of the national budget will be going to paying off the interest of the debt that's being accrued right yeah i mean first like first things first just the repeat after me it's so yeah. obno- so obnoxious like it's just like hubris yeah. yeah it's just so condescending it's like oh you know you're all just too stupid to even like get to the right inclusions conclusions so just repeat after me you know like i right. just just do what i say okay you're all too dumb to understand i this. have the nobel prize you don't, <laughs> yeah, so repeat yeah. after me yeah like and maybe you'll so obnoxious and then he said following that says something completely ridiculous because debt is money spent on real stuff and so that has to come from somewhere anything the government spends has to come from somewhere we already talked about this so it's like you know if 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 we're all just an aggregate right and and we we all just behave as an aggregate and you write yourself an iou yeah, okay. If like that's not a, a real problem, right? If I if I just write myself a a check for 10 grand, then yeah, that's not a real liability or a real asset for me because it's just a check I owe myself. But that's not how aggregates work, right? Like if some people are paying more than others in taxes, and some people are receiving more benefits than others, then it's not, you can't just cancel it out. Like, it's like, oh, we just, it's just money we owe ourselves. It doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's, because we're not all the same person. We're all individuals. Like, it all affects us differently. And if we don't even have, if that debt isn't, like we said earlier on this podcast, having a return on investment, if that money spent does not have a return, then the only way we're going to be able to pay for it is with inflation. Or just a lower standard of living in the future because we're going to give a higher proportion of our wealth in taxes to the government. So, and you know, we talked about how bad inflation can be. It should not be dismissed. Um, and so it's just like it's he's not even acknowledging any of these arguments. He's just saying, "Repeat after me." You know, it's not it's a non-issue. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that. It's uh, it's like the kind of um, analogy I would draw is like you can say, as a country, when we accrue more debt, it's like as a nation we're no poorer than. We... Those kind of conclusions are like the kind of conclusion that you could say, oh, on average, Americans have almost one testicle. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, okay, 
you can you can look at these broad you know averages and say uh you know you know <laughs> what but what useful information do you did you did you glean from you know on average the average american has almost one <laughs> testicle it's like you're co you're completely missing the point of like what that's trying to study like if you're trying to do that study you know <laughs> dude uh, yeah that that literally like this is like what central planners do they go on average the an american has less than one testicle therefore we must give each american 1.5 testicles to to make sure we're <laughs> to cover the gap yeah right so it's just like um when you're when you when you're trying to measure something for a direct reason right mm -hmm. an, an economist is trying to measure wealth to try to make everyone you know wealthier mm -hmm. which is it's a almost like a you um like that goal in itself is kind of goofy. Like mm -hmm. economists just like, okay, it's up to us to make everyone <laughs> better off. We're, we're taking it upon ourselves. Um, so, but leaving that aside, it's just, uh, if you're trying to study that and you're using things like on average, you know, when we accrue debt, that's just other, that's just one citizen owing some other citizen. Thus we're no, you know, as a, as a country, we're no richer or poorer. It's just like, that's completely off base. Like, right. Well, it's also just like, it's, it's so obnoxious because they don't have skin in the game. Right. So they're not, the federal reserve creates the money. The government takes the money, right? Neither of them are putting any of their own personal, you know, wealth into the game. And then they're making decisions for us and they don't pay any of the consequences. It's like, Okay, you think people aren't wealthy enough? All right, go build a house with your money and give it to someone. That's wealth. That's real stuff. Like, go create a job and pay it out of your own pocket if you want more jobs, if you want unemployment to go down. Like, that's, that's actually real, you know, incremental additions to the wealth versus others. Like, these may look make the numbers look better, but at the end of the day, it's not like they're overcomplicating it, right? Like if you want less homeless people, we need more houses. If you want less hungry people, we need more food. And those aren't, it's, it's not always as simple as just like, we need more farmers. Cause if more people go into farming, maybe we have less houses. That's the thing is there's scarcity, there's trade-offs. And that's what economies try to figure out. They try to figure out how to best manage the scarce resources we have available. And so it's like, you can't just solve these problems by saying, I decree, like, no more unemployment. Like, it's, it's, that's, it's ridiculous on its face. Yeah, in fact, they have reverse skin in the game, like, to, um, like to what you're saying. If you, if you work for the Federal Reserve and um, your goal is to, like, improve the economy, right, the, as, a, as a Federal Reserve employee... Skin in the game would look something like any position you take in the market. Like if the Federal Reserve starts buying assets or being lent assets, I guess you could say, uh, then you personally, as a Federal Reserve employee, would have a share of whatever you're buying or something. Like for example, like major head fund, uh, hedge fund owners, you know, if they have their own money in their own hedge fund, then you can say, oh, they want to do well because if they don't, they're losing their own money. If a major hedge fund owner 
put their money in somewhere else and was managing others' money. You could say, you know, why, why aren't you? Why don't you believe in what you're doing? Like you're, you don't trust yourself to invest your own money. You only invest other people's money. Like that's kind of kind of skin in the game. What the Federal Reserve does is they they take on the toxic assets <laughs> for the sake of economic improvement, which can be read as uh, stock market stability and, and inflated stock market prices. When most of the Federal Reserve, probably every Federal Reserve employee has stocks <laughs> right right they're absorbing these toxic junk bonds and corporate debt and uh mortgage-backed securities that are probably worthless or like you know not gonna yield the return that uh the, like the market would dictate therefore it's like no one wants it so the federal reserve takes it injects the money that goes into the stock market they don't have the assets that they're purchasing onto their balance sheet as a federal reserve but they have the assets that are getting pumped up with the the money that's created. It's just like that's like the reverse. And then, the, and well, obviously, the, the what they're assuming onto their balance sheet is the taxpayer is is liable for, especially with the special purpose vehicles that are uh, in their charter. They're listing they list the treasury as the first loss responsibility. So if these special purpose vehicles that they're creating that are buying this junk corporate debt. Uh, vehicles if they go bankrupt then the treasury is the owner at that point mm. and the treasury is just the ledger that's maintaining our tax flows so it's like we're going to be paying the taxes to the same entity that's going to be holding toxic sludge assets it's like uh just it's completely reverse uh the federal reserve is in a position of completely reverse incentives reverse skin in the game in my opinion mm -hmm. yeah and uh argentina defaulted for like the sixth time or like the ninth time in their country's history recently so you know they're employing all the all these sorts of reckless policies uh that we're we're getting into more and more and i know we have the reserve currency and that's like supposedly makes us immune it gives us invincibility but you know i i don't buy that uh i don't buy that we can just do whatever the hell we want just because we have the reserve currency because the reserve currency is a status that was given to us it's not like a birthright or anything special Very, yeah man. it's just it's just people trust our currency more than others but they won't if we're as bad as argentina with our money so there's no reason we we can just maintain that reserve currency status if we're just continuing to be extremely reckless. So I did want to address, I mean, one thing, so the thing about the national debt that people get scared about, it's like, okay, $26 trillion. You're talking about that sum, like, how are we ever going to pay that off? Well, it's actually true. We don't have to pay it off. Like, in fact, if we paid it off, it actually wouldn't be, you know, that wouldn't make any sense because people, the reason that people pay pay the government money or lend the government money the 26 trillion that was lent to the government is for the purpose of yielding you know it's a like every every dollar that was lent to the government is a bond that will be repaid with interest so i mean and most americans have uh retirement portfolios with uh with bonds in them so if we were to just pay them all off right now then a lot of americans like their retirements wouldn't 
I mean, I think, in my opinion, they'll be safer getting paid off today than they would be mm -hmm. if uh, we see what happens in the coming uh, coming years to the dollar. The dollars that will be repay the bonds will probably be worth less in the future. But anyway, it's not a necessity. You don't have to pay off the $26 trillion debt today, um, which makes people, I mean, modern monetary theorists want to say that the national debt is actually the national savings because it's like, that's the measure of the savings that um, <clears throat> were were uh, were lent to the fe to the federal government. Um, but yeah, j just to address that, uh, the 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 benefit of having um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to bring into the, the conversation about the how the the yield is constantly falling on treasuries. It's been falling for 30 years. But yeah, like I would say like the idea that bonds are just savings while they are savings uh, for some, they're taxes to other people, right? That, that money doesn't just come from nowhere, right? So uh, is, it, is it just that we basically have, you know, up young people coming into the workforce, paying taxes on spending that they had no say in even creating. You know, like it's debt is essentially taxing people who don't even get to vote on the issue. So I honestly, in my opinion, I'd like to see a government that's not even allowed to issue debt. <laughs> That'd be a place I like to live, honestly, because they'd have to get everything straight up. You know, if they want to pay for something, just tax. That's the only way. Yeah. I I don't know if I mind government issuing debt just because um No, I I mean I get I see what you're saying. Like I there's no opportunity for perverse incentives without with without lending debt. Right, because my opinion is just, I, unless the debt is like five, even, I mean, even if it's a five-year maturity on the debt, right? That's still like a 15-year-old is going to have to, or let's say you're just 17, right? One year before you get to have a say in anything. That's still four years worth of debt that that person has to pay that they had no say in the creation of. So it's just like, to me, on that margin, there's just winners and losers when you issue debt. Anytime you issue debt, I just feel like there's winners and losers. Uh, the government issuing debt. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, if the tax base is essentially voting on the budget, then it's like everyone has skin in the game. It's like, all right, we can spend this, mm -hmm. but if we're spending this, this is what we're this is what we're gonna pay in taxes. So it's like everyone in that scenario has skin in the game and like you know you can't just pass off the cost to a later generation and act like they don't exist which is what we currently do mm -hmm. yeah i'd like to see some kind of measure that doesn't exist that is like uh attempt to measure the actual return on government spending like like take a government <laughs> spend in a, in a year it's hard to do because like, i mean it's say, like, it's education. definitely negative it's definitely negative but like, um, say something like education, like oh, we spent mm -hmm. 
you know, so many billion dollars on education this year. And then 15 years from now, we have a very healthy staff of engineers, doctors, uh, right. you know, people that are Well, that's the thing is like educated. If any of this spending was net positive ROI, our, our debt would be going down. Right. It would be going in the other direction. Yeah, we'd be generating yeah. more tax revenue than, than we spent previously. But it doesn't. It only goes up. Yeah, exactly. So like the measure that you would have to, you know, come up with would be the measure, yeah, that, that, that difference between spend and, uh, and re- tax revenues. And as we were saying earlier, the spend is going exponential mm-hmm. and the revenues are not. <laughs> I mean, the revenues <laughs> can go yeah. exponential too if they just print a, Worthless a shitload of money, right? Like, but that's, right. you know, that's kind of what Venezuela did and it didn't really work out for them. So, I mean, I don't think we want to repeat that. So, basically, we need to do less spending. <laughs> we need to do less debt, taking on of debt. <laughs> what else do we need do to less, do? Do less, less money burning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah money burning. <laughs> do less <laughs> money printing. Uh, actually, the Libertarians just nominated their nominee. Honestly, I don't actually know much about her. Uh but in general, I read through her platform, and it involves doing less. So, I don't know. I guess I'll give her a shout-out for that. <laughs> but to be honest, I don't know too much about her. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to praise her yet. But I don't know. We could use some a little bit of less in our lives. A little bit less, yeah. I agree. <laughs> I did see, though, that... <laughs> she was po- she was tweeting the like caucus or the primary information and it would be like Iowa caucus it was like votes and it would be like it was like her three <laughs> Hornberger two and like Vermin Supreme one so <laughs> it's like in total like six people voted which I don't oh, wow. know <laughs> it's like I don't know kind of sad but funny at the same time yeah, just the fact that Vermin Supreme is like... A- <laughs> He's like 20% of the Libertarian Party. For context, this is a guy who wears a boot on his head and wants to give everyone a pony. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, like, I don't... I wouldn't consider myself a Libertarian just because I don't like to put myself in groups. Uh, but I agree with a lot of their ideas, so... But I don't know. They 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 definitely have a branding problem, <laughs> and that's I, it's going to be hard for anyone to ever take them seriously when like twenty percent of the <laughs> party votes for a guy with a boot on his head. I get it. I, yeah. Like it's satire, and I get it. But it's like that's not the, the, the average person isn't going to like respect that. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta get. You gotta votes from the mainstream right you're not gonna do that if it like some people think it's a joke yeah i mean it it sucks in my opinion because i i think if there's ever an election <laughs> for people to vote third party i feel like this is it uh yeah so i don't know we'll see, we'll see how it goes but uh yeah i don't i, I don't like to uh attach myself to any because i think there's a lot of flaws with the the libertarian party too but i think Mm -hmm. that's like the closest to like that they their their platform does the least 
So they, they, they carry on the spirit, I think, the best. Alright, well, I think that's good. Yeah, keep doing less. Keep doing less. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>